most of my favorite shots in that movie were me and Nico, who was my DP, mm-hmm. just with a camera on the street somewhere, stealing a shot. Yeah. And they look beautiful. So, you know, it makes you kind of want to say, can I just get someone great with a camera and put the right lens on it? Get one sound guy and some friends and can we just go run around and make something? But then, you know, it's a toss up, right? Like, what does the audience want? They want spectacle, right? They want tension. They, they, right. they, those, look at the, look at the box office now. It's all spectacle, right? It's all Marvel right. movies and, you know, they want a reason to go. I think it's just like if you make it the right way with the right people, you're okay, right? If you can go make the worst person in the world, I don't know if you saw that movie. You know, it's they clearly didn't make it for $200 million. They made it for that very sort of specific foreign audience and, and Americans that will watch a foreign film and it did great. So yeah, I don't know. You just got to make what you got to make. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. Visit www.petechapman.com to get your official director's chair wear, hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host. All right, all right. Welcome to episode 50 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And our guest today is none other than Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, director of the film Fool's Paradise and star of films like Horrible Bosses and Pacific Rim and Fist Fight and so many others. This is a really, really cool filmmaker to filmmaker conversation. I say filmmaker because while you may know him as an actor, he's a writer, producer, director. The feature film Fool's Paradise that I mentioned is something that he wrote produced, directs, and stars in. And so that, my friend, is a complete filmmaker and entrepreneur because p- producing a film, a feature film, is is like starting a business every time. So we will get into that conversation. Uh, Charlie hit me up late last week. We were trying to do the interview earlier, but you know, scheduling didn't work out. And I was going to hang up the podcast mic for a little bit because we're going on vacation next week. But we got into we got into it on this Sunday morning and had a really nice chat about the journey of an artist. To set things up, because we do we do flow rather quickly into our conversation. You know, we, we start out talking about origins and early starts as an actor. Then we transition into a conversation about it's always sunny that I hope comes from a new angle to maybe offer a different take on on that journey for Charlie. And then we transition into talking about Fool's Paradise. This is his film, as I've mentioned. It the logline is a fool for love becomes an accidental celebrity only to lose it all. And it includes the great actors Ken Jeong, Kate Beckinsale, Adrian Brody, Jason Sudeikis, the late Ray Liotta, Jason Bateman, Edie Falco, Mary Elizabeth Ellis, Jimmy Simpson, Common, um, John Malkovich. 
I'm just scrolling through IMDb record here and I could go on and on. David Hornsby, Alana Ubach, just some great folks. And it's a really, really star-studded cast that came together to make a, a really nice film. So I urge you to check it out, Fool's Paradise. That's a little bit of a, of a course map of our conversation. And uh, we'll get into that momentarily. I can also report that the DGA has reached a tentative deal as of last night. So we'll be hearing more about that. That has hit the trades. So that's, you know, I guess a positive thing. We'll see how it all how it all works out. Obviously, SAG after are about to have their conversations and negotiations and the writers will be returning to the table, I imagine, at some point soon. But, you know, in the interest of of fair deals for all, I, I hope that we're on course for that and everybody can come to the table and, and get a deal that works. But more to come, I'm sure, on the terms of this DGA tentative deal, and I'll share them when that time comes. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and hop into episode 50 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring Charlie Day. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. All right. So I know you've been doing a hell of a lot of press about the film. You're probably tired of talking about it. I assume. Maybe you're not. No, but no. I, you know, I, in some ways, I didn't get to do as much talking about it as I would have liked, you know, because I had to cut some of the press short when it was kind of murky about the strike. And, you know, now we're talking, the film's already out and done. So now, like, we're... I. I was like, perfect. Let's just chat as guys that work together. But um, no, I mean, I'll talk about it. And and now, you know, I have so many other things to say uh-huh. post-release because it's a whole different vibe. You know, I'm not just like trying to sell anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, that's awesome. I, I'll set like the table. Like if there's any tangent you felt you didn't get to go on or like, I don't know if there's a parts that questions that aren't asked. Yeah. Go out and answer because I, I I know, I imagine it can be redundant doing the press and saying similar things all the time. So like, man, this is the the, the place to lay it out in a different way. If, no, we'll if have a time. much more, you know, in-depth and honest conversation about filmmaking, I think, than I was able to do when you're talking to like extra mm-hmm. and you're trying to get people to go on Fandango, you know, and buy tickets, which I was awesome. unsuccessful at. So we can get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to ask, the, I mean, obviously you're, you're a writer, director, actor, musician. I, I like to ask the folks who have actor in their resume about particular characters. So can you tell me about Jeremy on Law and Order 2001? Who was that guy? Uh, 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 yeah. Well, the guy playing that guy was a young man living in New York City. He was probably 24 years old, 23 maybe. And yeah, I was, you know, I was lucky that I was able to kind of quit my restaurant job and I was getting enough commercials. There were so many commercials then that really that was paying the bill. And then every now and then you would pepper it with getting these day player roles that I must audition for. I must audition for Law & Order 20 times. You know, they're always looking for the guy at the dock who's like, yeah, I know him, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Didn't care for him, didn't trust him. So... I remember um, I wouldn't get cast a lot. I was trying all sorts of different things, you know. Like sometimes you try something sticky. Sometimes I tried to just deliver my lines like Christopher Walken, like just like 
things that of course didn't work because I was trying to find a way to like an authentic version of me. Mm. And I wasn't there yet as an artist, you know, and then like when you do kind of give up and you're like, well, I'll just do it as me. That's when they're like, well, that's interesting. So yeah. I go down there. It's Jerry Orbach, the late great. I kind of forget everyone was it, but it's like two takes. It's 6 a.m. It's 30 degrees out. It's raining. Right. And in terms of direction, the director's like, okay, say your lines. I'm going to circle the camera around you, kind of 360 you one direction. And then after you guys get it, Take two, we'll go the other direction. That's basically what what they did. And I was out out of there by, I don't know, 7 a.m. Were you were you literally oh they, so that those were literally your lines that you were at the dock, you were this guy? That was it. Yeah. I mean that was it. Okay. Yeah, those were literally my lines, but I think it was like a, an episode where there were a bunch of like MTV kids and they had mm-hmm. like like a reality show and one of them died. I think that was the, the premise. Yeah. And then you know, I'm I'm just a red herring. They go to, they say, hey, this one guy, he was kind of edgy and grumpy. That back, that was back when I was pulling off those characters <laughs> before I traded it all in for Charlie Kelly. But they, you know, they they come and they interview me and they think I'm going to be a suspect and they quickly learn, all right, this guy's got gotcha. the guy. So before, so you're living in New York, like how, what brought you there? Because you you grew up in Rhode Island, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, born and, in New York, actually, but raised in Rhode Island. And as soon as I finished, well, my big lucky break was this place called the Williamstown Theater Festival mm-hmm. that someone had just recommended me, me to look into. And I did a summer sort of interning there, and it was amazing. It just opened my eyes to that people could actually make a living as actors because mm-hmm. there was everyone... The big star when I was there was Scott Wolf, who was on Party Five at the time. So probably the most famous man I'd ever met. But mm-hmm. like, you know, like Campbell Scott, who's George C. Scott's son, was doing a play, and Robert Sean Leonard, Hope Davis, you know, who's in a succession now. And, you know, these great, great actors. And then there were these guys that were just sort of household names. There's a guy named Bruce McVitie who just passed away, but like, who was from Providence, and he was not famous. And he made a living, at, you know, in the theater and and doing guest stars on TV. And I remember seeing that guy and thinking, okay, well, if Bruce can do it, yeah, maybe I can do it. Because coming from Rhode Island, I'm not from a show business family. I didn't know anyone in show business. Right. So that kind of opened my eyes. And then um, I pretty shortly after that summer moved to New York City and got an apartment, you know, worked in restaurants, answered telephones, did everything I could for, you know, to make a buck. And then answered backstage ads, did people's short films, did everything I could do. And then I kept getting invited back into that festival and you could kind of climb through the ranks. It was... But how did it work? Was it like a week or two? Like, what was the... The first summer, you know, I was there. It was... I want to say it was like eight weeks or something. Maybe longer. And you were, you know, you were selling concessions. You were building sets. You were uh, picking up trash. You were you were running the joint. And then on the side, there were little plays that you did. And mm. if you were lucky, you got to say a line in one of the big main stage, main stage shows. But, but for the most part, you were just, you know, you were just hoofing it. But I made a lot of friends there. You know, yeah. David Hornsby and Jimmy Simpson, you know, who I'm still tight with. And then by the, and then they had really great programs for, more experienced actors, a lot of people from NYU and Yale and Juilliard. 
mm-hmm. would try to get into those non-equity programs, you had to audition. So after that first summer, I went back and I auditioned and I got, I actually got in and then I kept going up. By the time I was there, my last year, that group was me, Catherine Hahn, Sterling Brown, Jimmy Simpson, Logan Marshall Green. I don't know if you know him, great actor. I'm forgetting a couple of the other ones, but like good That's actors. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, and you had to, it was a real wake up call in terms of, I was, I was lucky because I think I was charismatic. So I would... I would be able to, from an actor standpoint, draw some eyes towards me. Right. But then, you know, you walk in a room with Catherine or Sterling, you better bring your A game because they're such good performers. And that was great for me to just be like, okay, how do I, how do I shine in every single scenario? Which is honestly, it's as simple as just a thousand percent commitment. Right. How do I, how do I commit a thousand percent to everything that I do? And was this more dramatic with, Dramatic material or like it was everything. It was yeah. everything, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think I was leaning more dramatic to be like, okay, best case scenario, I can get a chance to be like a young Dustin Hoffman or like a young Al Pacino and like Dog Day Afternoon, like those kind of things. Yeah. And that those were the first opportunities I was getting, you know, the third watch and the law and orders and things. But I also knew I liked to be funny and that right. you know, as soon as that uh, as soon as that door opened, that kind of was it for me. Who was, oh man, this is it. Actually, I have two questions. I, I throw them both out so I don't forget. <laughs> the first is, what was like the biggest, like I imagine you felt like you had some tools that you developed at Williamstown and then you moved to New York and like, did you find that those tools worked or you had to like, you know, reconfigure, re- retool and, and figure out the way to make it? you know, pop for TV and film? No. Well, I think they worked. Here's what worked. The networking aspect of it worked. I found like-minded people that were passionate. And that worked. Even though, ultimately, I think meeting Rob and Glenn is what changed the path of my career. The stuff I was doing with, like, Jimmy Simpson, who I'm we became roommates in New York and we would shoot so many sort of goofy short films, essentially what now are like TikTok videos, but this was before any of that was invented. And it, it was a crash course in, okay, what works on camera? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we would try these things, everything from guys with like wigs and fake teeth to little subtle things to, and certain things would work. It was usually always the smaller choices, but sometimes you could get away with a huge choice. And 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 then we developed like a, a weird sort of, I don't know, almost like sketch comedy vocabulary that Robin Glenn had seen the videos and they'd liked them a lot. And they came to me and said, hey, can you help me make a TV show? You know, or not like, can you help me, but can we all try to make a TV show together? So, I, you know, it's not as... It's not like as obvious, like a one-to-one kind of thing. It's just more like Williamstown opened my eyes to, okay, A, you can make it as a professional actor. You don't have to become Tom Cruise. You know, there's all sorts of, there's a spectrum of of performer and you can be on there somewhere. And B, making something great is really finding the right people to collaborate with and trying to find a spark of truth. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. I think it was just those two things were the biggest lessons. Yeah. 
Who was the first person that you saw, like, catapult that you met from the Williamstown days? Well, the first and most obvious person was Logan Marshall Green. So Logan, he did a great movie called Upgrade. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really cool. It's kind of like what flew under the radar. And Logan was such a good looking guy that, of course, that goes first, right? Everyone says, okay, this guy just, he looks like, well, unfortunately, he looks exactly like Tom Hardy. Like the two of the guys like look identical. And I think that's, that's hurt him a little bit. But he was just handsome and charming and he had that like Paul Newman quality. And of course he got, I think he got a Fox development deal and they put him right yeah. on the OC and off he went. But for everyone else, it was interesting bites of the apple, right? No one was, there were a few people that you were like, oh man, I feel bad. It's just, they're getting nothing. But everyone was mm-hmm. getting like a little something here and a little something there. And it was collectively exciting. Yeah. So no one person really, you know, shot out of there like a cannon, never looked back. Yeah. As I, I ask, cause I know like it's, it's a, it kind of keeps your, your battery going. Like the people that I came up with and like began to see, like make that transition. Like I had Kerry Washington in my NYU thesis and then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, say the last dance. And then. Yep. Ray and it was like oh wow like can I still run into her and it would all be cool and I was just kind of like okay it's possible and then you you know you know the person so you kind of see the difference between like this aura that uh-huh. develops around them but then the real person that it seems like everybody a lot of the folks that you met you know sometimes it takes 10 15 years or whatever but yeah you know, no it's very right you're right it's very helpful to see someone in your circle get success. I mean, I suppose it's all how you look at it. To some people, it's probably crushing and they can't move on because they say, you know, why them, not me? But no, I I was more like you. Like when someone got an opportunity that that made it seem tangible where you thought, wow, yeah, okay. Like, you know, if that person can get a sitcom or that person can, you know, get an independent film, maybe I, I probably could too. Right. And so you mentioned that like Rob and Glenn saw those videos where, where, was this like a circle of folks that were already, that you already knew each other? Like, were you now spreading these around? Like how they, how they see what you and Jimmy and, and folks were doing? Yeah. So I met Rob on a plane. So by this point, we're a few years living in New York. You know, I, I have an agent. Jimmy has an agent. We're getting the law and orders. We're getting things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not getting cast in any comedy, but I'm coming close a lot. Okay. And there was a television show called Mather House, I think it was called. It was kind of like a college kids, like maybe like an old school, but made for Fox. And they flew Rob and myself out to test (laughs) out in LA to do a a network test. And um, yeah, I met him there and they actually canceled the pilot while we were both out in LA. And we just became, you know, friends just from meeting someone and small talk. And at that time in your life where you're more open to making friends, not that I'm not open to making friends, but, you know, you don't, you don't have like a, a kid and a mortgage, you know, you're like, hey, what right. are you doing today? Want to come watch my funny short films? Glenn also kind of folded in in that odd way where maybe I'd met him at an audition. I forget where Rob had met him. And, you know, just kind of like that, just being young and in New York and there are people around and then... You know, by by the time I started making Sonny with those guys, I wasn't even that close of friends with them. 
sort mm-hmm. of acquaint, like just an acquaintance, you know, I'd hung out a few times here and there and this was like something to do together. What's been the biggest surprise to you, like about the show, if anything? Ooh, that's a good question. The show is an enigma, you know, like it's obviously been an absolute catapult for my career, just in terms of being known and and financial security and and the ability to just you know sort of a creative blank check that FX has given us for so many years to try so many different things to it's been boot camp and like how to how to make something right but at times you know there are times where i'm like i don't know I mean, it's, is anyone does anyone really care about this is it just a small like core of people mm. that love it and then i don't know then we go and we do a podcast and we sell out a stadium yeah that's crazy it's, yeah but then we've never been to like an award show like it's a weird it lives in this weird place and then you know now i wrestle with the whole sort of larger kind of existential questions of like, oh man, have to be, did I stay on this too long? Will I only ever be perceived as this character? And, and, you know, if I don't continue to do the same type of thing, will people be hugely disappointed? You know, all those, all those kind of mind fucks. Yeah. These are all high class problems though. I mean, for the most part, it's been yeah. just the greatest thing that ever happened to me. But it's a, but they're, but they're real though, right? Like, you know, oh, like yeah. any, any time you do something for so long, as rewarding as it is. And like, I, I tip my hat because I, I came to the show, I came to the show in reverse because Todd Beerman had, I think, mentioned me to Rob for Mythic yep. Quest. So you I did Mythic to, Quest first, right? I did Mythic Quest first. Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, okay, let me, um, like I, I actually maybe seen a couple episodes, but I wasn't like, I didn't like go deep into the show. And I was like, well, I got to watch the show. So okay. I was like, let me start with, oh, the gang turns black. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's the one I That's an incredible one to start with. I was like, yeah. So I watched that and I was like, okay, okay. And there, and there are like so, so many lines that you walk on the show. But oh, yeah. then like you go there and mm-hmm. and I was always like, sometimes I'd be like, "What we what are we gonna do?" And, yeah. and the dismount, I was always like, "I appreciate the dismount. It was well crafted." And then I think I watched the water park one. And that yeah. shit was crazy. That yeah. shit was so fucking funny. That's a strong episode. But like to be in to be going into what season seventeen now? For yeah, for, well, we just. For, 16's coming out, about to 16's air. coming out, so you'll do 17, right? Like, it still holds up, man. And like, I, you know, I felt like the episodes I directed, they were really strong, really funny. Yeah, and they they're had, great episodes. They're like, you know, you guys managed to ha- have a have a point that's really well, it's like the medicine is well hidden in the food. Well, yeah, you know, I don't know how much of that was some sort of you know, brilliant way of approaching the work and how much of it we sort of stumbled into. And, you know, we've gone back, we've been podcasting and going back and rewatching them. And I'm feeling really good about how most of them hold up from a comedic standpoint. I think because, well, we had the the one benefit of that. The joke was always on us, right? The joke was always, hey, these are bad. These are bad, <laughs> bad people 
making terrible decisions. And, you know, by virtue of that, let's sort of laugh at their decisions. But even that is not a, a blank check for success. We try to walk that line and, you know, good comedy brings you up to a place of where you're going to feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then maybe even dangles you over the cliff for like a few minutes and then yanks you back right when you thought you were going to die. So it's tricky, you know, it, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard tone to pull off. And we're lucky with like when we started the show, I don't think we could start the show now and just introduce yeah. a bunch of characters behaving this way. You know, I think people know, okay, this is safe. This group is safe. These guys are going to do these crazy things and we're okay. Yeah. As a, as a writer, and this is maybe, you know, I listen to a lot of writing podcasts and I love script notes and they've been having a lot of conversation about like, like writing about teams, you know what I mean? So like, whether it's like Ocean's Eleven and like how you have to construct the, these different personalities or different goals, or um, I think Mason was talking about the hangover and how basically those guys are basically the same person, but it's like one's driven by wow. the id once driven by, you know, you know, uh-huh. so how do the pieces, how would you say the pieces work, you know, of the gang? Like, what do they offer? Sure. How, how do you d- construct that? It's pretty easy to actually explain how we do that. Well, one is, you know, we try to usually service every cast member in every episode, which is sometimes a pain in the ass. We're like, we got to, shit, we don't have a good storyline for D or for Frank. And we're like, we got to come up with more. But I, I, we just kind of woke back up to this, I think, this last year in writing, which was a mantra for us in the beginning of doing the show, which was saying, we have to know and believe that each character wants what it is that they want in the episode. So we have a, you know, we create a, a situation. Oh, we found a baby in a dumpster, right? And then right. we we sort of pitch out how, what everyone thinks and feels about that and then what they want as a result of it. And then we have to make sure the audience believes that they want what they want, no matter how extreme, okay? If Mac wants to give the baby a spray tan because he wants to get it more work as because so, the baby needs to be more diverse, you know, we have to really believe that he wants that. So that's always been our sort of, writing mantra, which is say, okay, you know, let's create a conflict and then let's really dig into each character's want. And yeah, I think, you know, it's not to jump forward to my movie, but it's really interesting that then I went and wrote a character entire movie where the main character doesn't want anything. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a big writing no-no, but I think maybe that's me wanting to try different things. But I, I, I not to, not to, divert but i've i've always loved the passive character in trying to like in finding a way to make it work because it's the challenge right like to have the the events of the world around them impact them into some action yeah not yeah it's very hard to actually do i think even in the movies where the character might seem passive like the big lebowski or something Mm -hmm. i think they're like you know, I think he's he's passive in his desires. He likes to bowl and he likes to, you know, drink <laughs> one of those white Russians, you know. But he's active in what he goes and does in the movie. You know, he wants to get his rug back and, right. you know, he's constantly 
taking action like in a Raymond Chandler novel. But yeah, it's hard to do. It's tricky to do. The want is usually the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when you guys are, you know, you've sculpted out the episode, it's written, you're on set. How do you figure out, how do you handle disagreements in, in what works while you're shooting? Well, mostly, and you've been on set. We don't tend to disagree very much on set. You know, usually we've hired someone like you that we feel very comfortable with. Sometimes we've hired someone that's like new or young and we're giving a, a shot. But even then, our show aesthetically, it's so sort of baked in that unless we're doing one of our specialty episodes, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's not too much that can go wrong as long as you're cross-covering a lot of the comedy. And then everything else just sort of feels like cherries on top if you want to add some other stuff. But if we're yeah. like, like, if we point the camera at these guys saying this stuff, we should be fine. And But in terms of arguments, they usually all come up in the writing room and our way of handling is very democratic. We have a vote. There's three of us. And so, you know, there's always a tiebreaker. Uh-huh. And Sounds very succession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And it really works. You know, there's been seasons where it was just Robin and myself. There's like two years where Glenn wasn't really there in the writing room. And um, I found that trickier. You know, I think I, I'm i more likely to just kind of give in and be like, all right, man. <laughs> you know? Versus like if I had Glenn, I could be like, hey, come on, Glenn, don't you agree? That and then uh, Right. And it kind of goes around the horn. You know, sometimes it's me and Rob convincing Glenn of something. Sometimes it's Glenn and Rob convincing me of something. And sometimes it's me and Glenn convincing Rob. And it just has always been that way. So, yeah. Yeah, you guys do have such a well-oiled machine. Like, I've never done a show. because I never did Modern Family, so I've heard the legend. But I've never done a show where rapping before lunch was common, you know? <laughs> um, and it's funny, too, because when I do, I go to another show and I have to go. It takes me like a scene to get the, to get the sunny out of, my, out of my bloodstream where I'm like, we got it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they're right, like, right. you, you want to get another shot? Oh yeah, yeah. That was last week. I think too the 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 yeah. I mean, like, look, it depends on the episode, right? Because I remember being in a in the like swamp set with you. Like, sun's down. It's midnight. We're trying to get a car coming down a foggy road. You know, like it's the end of the night. Like, so depends. Sometimes we're like, okay, we we have certain shots we want to get. It's going to take us a while. But for the most part, you know, if it's me and Danny talking in a in our apartment. Mm-hmm. not too much you can do. We don't lay track. We just have these tiny little handheld cameras and <laughs> right. off you go. Can you talk about, because I, I love folks to get some idea of like, you know, something to learn from. What are, what are some things that you've seen from directors that come in that are like, you know, things that could be done better, in particular to the comedy of, of Sonny? You know what I mean? Well, when it comes to directing Sonny, it's all about preparation, right? Like if you come in prepared and with a plan, then great. You've taken, you've taken a lot of work off our shoulders and, you know, we might have different opinions. We, you, you might come and say, Hey, the camera's here. You guys come in here. Or you might say, you know what, actually, when we wrote this, we were picturing it this way. Let's, and I think it, you know, the directors that have 
done better with us are the ones that are super prepared, have a great sort of blocking and coverage approach, and then are have no problem completely changing if we see it a different way and are able to change and do it quickly, you know, without getting flustered. For us, that's that's the main thing. I think you could get a lot more into like the actual technical aspects of it. But, you know, we we got these three little handheld cameras and it's sort of a choreography sort of song and dance, which is to yeah. say, hey, can we play out the entire scene so that these cameras move around as we move around and we cover the whole thing and then we just do like five takes of that, six, eight, and then we're done. That's a scene. Maybe we go for like one other little angle, one other setup thing, but... Right, right. When... How do you gauge? Well, okay, well, are you involved in like the hiring of the directors as well? Yeah. So how do you gauge whether or not someone's going to be able to work well in that system when they're, when they're new, when you haven't worked with them before and you're just going off of a meeting or anything like that? Well, when we were young and starting out, it was, you know, word of mouth, you know, people saying, hey, this person is a good director. They're going to help you. And then our general meeting with them, you know, we sat with them and, and it's not necessarily, you don't have to be great in a meeting. I remember when we sat with Matt Shackman, Matt Shackman is a great director. There's no doubting how talented this guy is. And, you know, he's, he's not like, he's not a salesman. He's not like Mr. Slick. He's not going to kind of jump through hoops and try to impress you in a meeting. And we, and sometimes we would meet with people who were that way and you'd be like, eh, they seem more interested in trying to bond with us than they do in telling us how they're going to shoot the show. And Matt had a really just passionate sort of theatrical minded approach to what he was doing that I, I, I remember very specifically, you know, Robin Glenn being like, oh, I'm not so sure. And, and, and me being like, I think this guy's going to be really good. And then them sort of agreeing like, yeah, no, he did what he was saying was interesting. So there's that aspect. There's, it's, it's such a different gig, the TV director for hire, you know, and, yeah. and I guess I've, you know, I've, I've had three shows and a couple like pilots and, you know, for the multi-cam, that's a different thing. I'm sort of trusting I wasn't really hiring the directors for that. I'd hired the, the pilot director, but outside of that, you know, sort of stepped away from that and were, would come to set when people had already picked the director. Most of them all seemed great. With Sonny, yeah, it's now it's kind of a combination of, hey, let's take some shots on some new younger people mm -hmm. and create opportunities, which sometimes is great and sometimes is a lot of work for us. And then, and then you're lucky. You're either on set with someone and you're like, I like their personality and I like how these episodes turned out. Maybe it's not even their fault half the time. You know, maybe you bring someone in and their episodes stink and they were poorly written <laughs> and we blame the director. I don't know. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I think it's just a sense of preparation. Like just, you know, when you come to set, you have a game plan and it takes the pressure off us. We think, okay, great. If we do nothing, Pete's got it. So now we're here to to add 
So let's look at his plan and see, is there something else we can add? There's another thought, another idea I might have. And that's yeah. basically it. Yeah. No, no, that's, I appreciate that. It's helpful, I think, for folks to hear because it's, every show is so different. I've, I've, I've told folks like, you know, you have to embrace the, the methodology of the show, you know, because like you're not going to change it. But then if you do have an idea, like you still need to pitch it because sometimes people will respond to it. Because I found that on, on, on Sunny too, it's like, it's what you said. It's here's the coverage and like, is there a special, you know, like, yeah. and, and we'll take 10 minutes to, to get that one thing. But then there's a lot that you can learn from like, I remember specifically moving to like a show where I did a lot of like big vehicle stuff, coordinating like, you know, fire trucks and police cars and all this stuff for this fire. And I was like, oh man, I'm using the Sunny template to make this work by like having, you know, these three cameras and using like the vehicles and, and people taking other people's blocking to keep it interesting mm -hmm. versus like trying to get this shot, that shot, that shot and, and not get through the day. And it's like a little, a little trick that I kind of keep going back to. Like, how can you move the people within the scene to kind of do a little three card money and make it seem like the cameras are doing things when they're really not. What, yeah, right. Well, you know, I think what works so well with it, with Sonny and what works so well with it for comedy specifically, but probably for anything is that it, there is a certain aliveness to covering something that way that it, it that, you know, in a pinch, if you cover something in that way, it will feel closer to reality than the like, okay, I'm locked off here and I'm low. Now I'm high. You know, like right. that's an, that's a whole other art form, right? That's a very Hitchcockian kind of like, here are the shots. And mm. yeah, when you pull that off, it's great. But if you sort of have a Sydney Lumet dog day afternoon run and gun style, right. it's going to feel very alive and be very interesting. It really depends on the scene, the show, you know, everything is a case by case. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about improv, right? Mm. Because you, you guys do seem to, after you get the scripted version, more or less, kind of take a few swings, right? And, and have a fun run or whatever you want to call it. Like, mm -hmm. what's your approach to that? Like, what's what I know it's, it's like, it's always what, yes and or whatever instead oh. of whatever that might be. But like, how did, what's your personal approach to, to, Excelling um, at that because you guys kill that. Well, yeah, I think, thank you. I think what we don't do and I think where it goes wrong is we're not just trying to come up with like wackier, funnier, like, you know, I I said hamburger, but what if I said um, scramburger? You know, like we're not like, it's basically saying, okay, is there another way to do this scene where someone just has a different, a slightly different intention than what's on the page or says something that sparks something different. And now we're without a net and we don't know where we're going to go. And, right. and I, I'm a big believer in that. I think I, I would think even in a drama where, where I lucky enough to put one together, which is to say, okay, we have what's here on the page and we think it's pretty good. And like, okay, what, is there anything that can be more alive? You know, can we, can we get, can we get rid of the constraints of what, what our preconceived idea of the scene is and stumble into something. I mean, in this day of digital filmmaking, there's almost no risk of trying that. Right. 
So, you know, can we find those happy accidents that only happen? Um, you know, I remember uh, we were talking about a, a sunny episode from season six that had Roddy Roddy Piper in it. And, <laughs> and Roddy had written a thing that he wanted to say. He's like, you know, at the end of the scene where I get taken away by the police for my unpaid parking tickets, I'll roll down the window and I'll give a speech to you boys about how much I, I love you guys. And we're like, well, okay, sure, man. Yeah, give it a whirl. Like, who cares? Right. So he goes to say the speech, but he had forgotten to tell the stunt driver that he was going to do that and that he needed the extra time to talk. So he rolls down the window and he starts to say, ah, my boys, you know, I love you boys. And then the car starts to pull off. He's like, wait, 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 no way, my boy, no way. And to us, it was so, so funny and so awkward. And we never would have thought of that. Right. And just saying, well, maybe that's the yes and just saying yes to being like, okay, well, let's try something created this super awkward, happy accident that just felt very alive and real and and comedically, you know, one of those things where you watch and you're like, how do those guys think of that? Well, the answer was, we didn't. Right. You know, we're just, we're just open to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, this is Antella Cropper, producer, director. You're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chap. Transitions. A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weasley Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration. This book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your local mom and pop shops, people. So what was the impetus for moving into features when you did? Well, this is is a good question. So I've always... You mean as an actor or as a writer, director? Uh, actually, as an actor, because I know also, you know, one of the early films kind of, you got the relationship with Guillermo del Toro, which kind of was very impactful for your film, yeah. Paradise. So like, Yeah, it was helpful for um, sure. Did you, were you looking, were you still actively trying to do film in TV outside of Sonny as an actor? Yes, always. I mean, I always just loved movies and still, I think have a love for movies where I I gravitate towards them over television, even though the truth is, you know, the better work right now probably is in television. You know, if you look at talking about succession, you know, you're not going to find a mid-level budget drama where they put in, you know, 50, $100 million into making a drama and you're going to see it on television. The only problem with that is that you know, it inevitably has to get dragged out to, to to create more episodes. And then there's the soap opera effect of almost every drama. It's just going to happen. Yeah. Uh, season three. Always. Yeah, season three. <laughs> I think Succession kind of got in and out in a perfect way. But no, I, I love movies. Always wanted to do movies. Always wanted to make movies. Probably always wanted to write and direct movies, but didn't think I could do it until I'd done a lot of Sunny, you know, and had so much writing and sort of show running under my belt. And, you know, and then in terms of this movie was just sort of like a little 
idea I had on the side that I was tinkering with for many years and I never thought I'd get it made. And then one day, either rightly or wrongly, <laughs> I did get it made. So there you go. When did you start working on a script for Fool's Paradise? 2014. Okay. In 2014, I was just riffing on an idea, very obviously being like, oh, could I just do a fun little fun, funny movie? Like Hal Ashby's being there. Just feeling like, okay, no one's making those movies. No one's going to give me a chance to be in one of those. Could I just make my own? And instead of setting it in, in Washington and in politics, can I do the Mr. Magoo storyline in Hollywood? It seemed to apply. It seemed to be like, right. well, this is talk about a place where you just build people up. And I'd, I'd written a version of it originally called El Tonto, a very different movie than the one that I released. And then just sort of sat on it, you know, showed it to a few friends here and there, but sort of like, I don't know, this is such a wild, a big swing and so different from what I do, you know, do we think it could work? And it wasn't until 2017 that I was thinking, just shoot something, like, forget it. Like, let me just, let me just try and make it. Like, who cares? Yeah. And, and went to my buddy, John Ricard, who is a producer who I've done horrible bosses and fist fight and things with, and who I didn't initially was like, well, I love John, but he's not the right guy. You know, he, he just made rampage. This is like, you know, I, I want this to feel very small. Not, I don't want it to feel small, but this, like, this is more Coen brothers than it is, uh, you know, Ridley Scott. So, right. uh, but you know, the fact that he just liked it and wanted to help me get it made was enough. And then we just scoured around everywhere looking for, you know, someone who would make it. Most people didn't want to make it, understandably. And, um, but these guys at Armory Films who actually Todd Bierman knew, they'd just done Peanut Butter Falcon and they'd done a movie called Mud that were both pretty great. You know, they said, hey, if you can do this for Peanuts, We'll, we'll pay for it. And they said, well, I can't do it for, I can't do it for nothing, nothing, but I can do it for pretty cheap and make it look like an expensive movie, just pulling every trick in the book. Right. But, you know, in hindsight, it's so funny. I, I remember right. I'd done a movie called The Hollers with John Krasinski. And I had, you know, an early draft of that script and I'd, I'd asked him to sort of read it, get his thoughts. And he was like, this is really funny. He's like, what you should do, this was his advice. What you should do is you should make this with no famous people and like super cheap as you can do it. And he's actually, I think he was actually right. I think, you know, I think there's a thing where you, when you get a parade of celebrities and the celebrities that you know and love, you're wanting them to do their thing and be in the movie for a while. And then when they're not in the movie, for a while, you're just kind of annoyed. So I, I do think that hurt me, but the reality was I I needed the names to secure the financing. And also I, I had so many big things like big sets and, you know, that I would have had to completely rewrite it to do a sort of nameless version of it in terms of right. the performers. So I, I just didn't see how it was even possible. Also, I had a, something aesthetic. I had an aesthetic that I was like, I'd like to see if I can make something really beautiful. Right. Whether or not that should have been this story is a 
maybe someone would argue. But it was interesting that that was his reaction to it. And then somewhere in that time frame, my friend Mark Neveldine, who directed the Crank movies, had read the script and he'd loved it. And he also was like, hey, let's, I have a guy who makes movies for like under a million. I'm like, I don't see how to do it. I don't see how to do it. So I, di- I didn't go with him. But, you know, ultimately, I, I found the Armored guys and they were willing to, to take a bet on it. And and we took a shot. at We filmed it, the first version, in 2018. And the movie... The movie that I was going for initially was called El Tonto. And it was called El Tonto because the movie was told by a, a man whose Spanish was his first language. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an, like an unreliable narrator. He was from a family in East LA, Mexican-American family. He made his living as a day laborer. He sold oranges on the side of the road. And one of the whole reasons I even thought of the idea was I, you know, I was stuck behind a car, a very fancy car with a man trying to sell oranges on the side of the road. And, and the guy was on his phone and I was like, he seemed just like a producer or something. And I thought, oh, that's, that is such an interesting dynamic. Like Hollywood is so non-inclusive to the Latinx communities. I think primarily, especially for a community that has been here the longest. That seemed really interesting to me as a way in. So in my initial version of this movie, this character, this narrator is telling this story. and everything that you see my character go through in the movie is sort of his unreliable fantasy of what's happening to me, which is why I sort of went heightened with the costumes and the things. And, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, basically what happens is he says, look, some guy stepped off a bus one day, I think, I don't know. There's no hospital scene. There's no explaining who I am. He says, all I know he seemed like an idiot, you know. He's he seemed I I couldn't figure this dude out, and he and he says, but the worst thing that happened to me was my daughter brought him home, and then I have a scene where <laughs> his daughter meets me in a park, and she asks if I'm homeless, and then I make her laugh, and she's like, she brings me home for dinner, and they say they're gonna just put me up for the night, and they let me sleep out back back, and there's like two big barking dogs, and they take me in. And he takes me to get work and I become like a part of the family. And the daughter starts to fall for me. And then we're selling oranges on the side of the road one day and Ray Liotta comes up Mm. and he realizes I look just like this method actor who won't come out of his trailer. So then to make matters worse, they go into Hollywood. They take me into Hollywood and they're making a movie called Squanto. And it's all, the main guy is like a Johnny Depp type guy. and he won't come out of his trailer and he's playing a Native American. So they're making an incredibly like racist movie. So, and then what happens is he starts to see from the outside. He's like, I don't know how this white guy just keeps failing up. And everyone who is around me, who's like diverse, like Ken Jong, he dies actually in my original version, you know, common, like everyone it like gets chewed up and spit out and the, the white people keep failing upwards. Eventually, I find my way back to the family and the daughter has married and moved on and I get back on the bus and he's like, you know, I don't know anything about this guy, but he's just like another fool in a city full of them. Mm. That's a very different movie than the one that I released. So 
by the time I got that finished, I had three, I think, major issues with the film. One, and there was no getting around this, just the pure engine of me not talking and and passing the buck comedically to everyone else in the movie. You know, if you don't allow yourself to go on that ride, you can't... You're, it's just too much of an ask for the audience. I think that's fair. For the people who do allow themselves and 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 meet the movie where it is, I think they're having a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. And hopefully maybe when the movie becomes something that people like just have on while they're like, you know, shooting off emails, they they like, you know, can like enjoy it more and more. But so, you know, I had that problem. I knew I had that problem. And that was when I had reached out to Guillermo and he didn't like the storyline with the family and and then that and I had the other problem of rightly or wrongly you know when George Floyd died and the industry sort of woke up to how racist they've been I think there was a consensus from an executive that we shouldn't buy a movie from a white man talking about how racist Hollywood is now whether that was fair or unfair I felt it too on my own where I sort of felt like, well, man, I wish I had co-written this with a Mexican-American writer to get more in-depth to that character's storyline and have a more honest sort of portrayal of his family to have the satire hit harder. So it was much more in the world of what we do in Sunny, right? But these are not the Sunny characters. It's a new, right. new thing. So I was faced with a, like a really tough decision. You know, I tried to sell the movie and I, I had a lot of like groups of all white executives telling me things like, well, all your executives in your movie are white. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know? They wanted to have a little bit of a, they wanted to have a different presentation. So the conversation or the, or the point would be different, right? I think there, there was just a, a lot of collective business fear that no one wanted to be on the wrong side of history, right? But that's an excuse. I don't think that I had a version of the script that was perfect anyway. There was just something wrong in the engine of my story, which was that, look, my character didn't want anything, but he kind of wants the girl that he lives with. So there was a bit of a mixed message there. And maybe I didn't nail my metaphors or whatever it was. And Guillermo was really helpful in terms of saying... And people might disagree, actually, with Guillermo's opinion, but Guillermo really felt like Ken was the heart of the movie. And uh, I saw that. I could see a version of that. And I was actually doing another movie. I was doing a, this rom-com with Jenny Slate, and we got put in a 14-day COVID lockdown. Mm. And I just sat back down with my script, and I thought, well, this kills me to do, but if I take all the teeth out of it, and instead of instead of being this movie about this this narrator telling the story, it's a movie where you follow this sort of sad sack publicist and all he wants is to be a part of Hollywood and he hitches his wagon to a man who doesn't want anything to be in Hollywood. Can I turn this into a different movie? And then can I sell it and can I give the the financiers their money back? They don't have to make a ton of money to make their money back on this. And that's what I did. And so... And then, you know, I wound up with a version of it that I actually kind of love. You know, John Bryan came in and did this great score and right. the score is beautiful. And Leslie Jones is an incredible editor and she did some really interesting stuff. And I think we came up with a different version of the movie that I was able to sell. 
That's the main thing. And and we were able to release. Look, was it tough to read reviews and hear like, hey, how, how could he make a teethless satire? Yeah. It was like really like kind of a gut punch to be like, I, I, you son of a bitch, I had to do it because of you. But like, I think that's also like, yeah, everyone's expecting Sunny and then they get something that is so not Sunny and also like somewhat plotless. You know, that's a real tough ask for the audience. So this was a really, I've not been through an experience that was this much of a roller coaster up and right. down changes. It was challenging. But then Films are hard. Films oh, are hard, you know? And like, this is, I mean, I appreciate you being so introspective and honest about, about the process because it, it is, it is eye-opening, I think, for many. And, you know, I saw, I saw it just from a link. I, Chris Mackin I had, had mentioned it when he was yeah. shadowing me back in whatever year that was, 2021, yeah. I don't know. And yeah. so I was like, and I saw the trailer. So I was like, oh, this is like, this looks really cool. And I, I kind of try and enter with a blank slate and let the thing do its thing. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I think I could, it's easy to sit with it and, and let it, let it unfold. And it's all set up so well in the first scene. And I, I wasn't, I get what you mean about like the, you know, the parade of, of familiar faces. Like, what does that do? But, you know, I mean, how else do you get the movie made? And also like once how it happens, you it's also highly, it's also about Hollywood. So it yeah. kind of feels like the proper handshake of, of, of casting and theme and, and, and story. Well, you know? I, I, re I really appreciate that. And I actually do think that people are going to meet it at face value and have the same experience that you have. I think it was tough for the critics and some of the audience to, to do that. I think with so much expectation of with the yeah. history of Sonny and, and what I do that I do think some of the criticism is totally fair. But I also think, you know, it's also you just got to make something and then let it be whatever it's going to be over time. And I yeah. do think over time, it's going to age well. I think it's going to, I think it, it's going to age well. So in that regard, I'm glad I kind of went in and made all the changes and did what I had to do. But it was a real... I mean, there were so many times in that process that I was like, why don't I just make a sports movie with like, <laughs> you know, like the, the team that's not supposed to win winds up winning, you know, like just the, the formula that the audience wants or like a bank heist where it's like the tension is constantly there. But, you know, for better... Then what's the point, right? Like, like Then what's the point, right? You don't want to just like you, you've copy been doing, paste. You've been doing a particular thing for a number of years very well. And now it's like, let me go work another muscle, try a different thing. Like, what's the fucking point, that, right? That's, it, that's it, right. You no, know, like. That's the point. The point is to take risks and put yeah. something into the world that is unique to you. And then, yeah. and then if you can do it again, do it again. But there were a lot also, of lessons. Yeah, no, no, I, I like I, and I'm processing this through like my own journey too, because like I feel like I, my, I did like the reverse, mm. where like I was always, I mean, I was making short films, I made two features, and I was always like, want to do it my way, tell my story, here's my like perspective on shit, and hopefully, if this connects, then I'll build a career based off of how I see the work, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't. And so, you know, for 15, 16 years, like that's what I'm doing. And then I went to TV, I, you know, and then I, and now I'm just like telling more straightforward stories, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, well, this is a really good muscle that I'm developing. And all the things that I've been writing, now I bring that back to these ideas that were, you know, kind of look at me, look at me. And now I, I kind of feel like now I know how to like, get it all to work together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, I think, I think the choices we make are all based off of the journey. And if you could do it again, like you probably, well, let me ask you, if you, if you could do it again, what would you do? That's a great question. Um, two huge things. Cause I think no matter what you do with the camera, the script has to be so airtight. And, you know, the script is everything. But I, so what I what I would do to do it over again is I would take that a very original 2014 draft and I would bounce it off so many of my writer friends. I would annoy everybody. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, that was one thing. I didn't want to annoy everyone. Like by the time I went to Guillermo, it was like hat in hand, like man on his knees. <laughs> like, I'm fucked here, man. You know, like, how do I get out of this? You know, I think I would early on just be like, okay, Everybody tell me your thoughts on this. And then if I was getting a lot of dead ends and a lot of like people being like, yeah, you know, you're going to have an issue that XYZ is really not going to work. And if I didn't see a way through it on my own, I would have just brought on another writer and be like, get your goddamn ego out of it and just co-write this, you know? So I would do that. That's from a writing standpoint. From a directing standpoint, I would not make the movie just because I could, I would make the movie with the right team that made the movie or not make it at all, which is to say I would have like the right sort of producing, distributing team involved. I, this, this is not a slight on anyone who I made the movie with because they're all great producers and it's just, were they the right producers for this particular film? Hard, hard to say. Probably not. You know, anything that may work or not work with the movie, of course, it all falls on my shoulders, but it would have been nice to have been able to turn and talk to someone who had, you know, 10 of these size and style films to be like, what's the move here? You know, okay, something's off. What's the fix? You know, to to go it alone is, is really challenging. I think it really helped me when I brought on Leslie Jones and even John Bryan to be like, okay, you guys have made... Mm-hmm these style movies before you can help kind of guide me into bringing this thing home. But a lot of the DNA was already there. So I would just do that from the very beginning, from the very beginning. So it's pretty much just saying I'd make them right, the movie the right way with the right people or just go make a different movie. Yeah. 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 That's tough, man. Like It is right. Especially when you, when you like, you've taken the time to kind of outline the each milestone and it's all a series of, you know, I, I had somebody tell me this one time and we could argue whether it's a, it, it's true or not, or if it's splitting hairs, but he's, he said, there's a difference between a choice and a decision, you know, and, and, and it sounds like. Explain that to me have, a little bit. So what I took from it is like, you know, a choice is I'm going to 
you know, not make this movie, right? Like the mm-hmm. things that are coming my way, I'm, I'm deciding not to. The decision is, well, if you get this and that, you can make it. <laughs> right. right. And, it, right. and it sounds like there were a series of decisions that all make fucking sense. Mm-hmm. But the uh, sum of all parts is what you're talking about. And yeah. It's impossible, right? We really kind of yeah. can't go back because you just get, well, first of all, you can't go back. Right. And secondly, okay, you can learn, you can go on to the next one, but who's to say, you know, I could do the next one and, and there could be tons of things that I couldn't predict that could come up. Right. And it's really interesting, right? So in the course of the time from when I first filmed it to now, I've written other things. You know, I have things that are in various stage of where they are from a writing standpoint. And, you know, I, I look at them and like none of them are more commercially safe. You know, nothing's like a mm. horror film. You know, right. nothing, nothing is a sports movie. Nothing is like a, a, a you know, like Liam Neeson's Taken. Right. Um, because I don't know. I, I, maybe it's just not coming out of me. And then to what extent are you like, well, don't repeat history here and make another thing that's challenging the audience too much? Or, or so, to what extent are you saying, look, this is just a piece of me. I have to work this way. Let me just try it again, but with a different sort of team to help steer mm-hmm. to be the most successful version of this type of movie it can be. I don't know. Those are intangibles. And I'm maybe at like creatively a very raw place right now. Having right, just right. had released the movie. It's probably better to like sit and think for a bit, but I don't I, know. I, yeah, man, I feel like, you, you know. live once, just make yeah. some stuff. And, make it. I feel like, like, I feel like there's like, we all have our creative house and it's like, in the, in the if it's analogous to a restaurant, like, you know, I want to know what Charlie Day's cooking over there, you know? And he, and, and, He's cooking it because that's what he wants. He wants to offer people when they come by to eat. And, you know, sometimes you change the menu. Sometimes you keep it. Sometimes you make a special. <laughs> and that's only right. You know, like I, I, I'm at a crossroads where I'm, I'm like, okay, I've made two features. It's, they don't exist to Hollywood because I did them on my own. You know, mm-hmm. raised half a million dollars for one. The other one was about the same. And I'm like, all right, well, I still have these things and that I, I want to say, but let me see if I can fold it into a heist film. Yeah. You know? And and then we'll see what happens. Like if that doesn't, you know, God willing, I make I, I get it made. And then if that doesn't resonate the way I thought, I'll probably be like, man, fuck that shit. I should have just <laughs> I should have just, just made it like super tiny and like, cause I I love, man, like I'm a huge Soderbergh fan and it sounds like maybe Krasinski was saying this like I love those things where he would it would be like well I guess it's not what he's saying but it would be like you know Julia Roberts and all these folks like own wardrobe own makeup yeah you know just come Mm -hmm. bang this thing out and like let's tell this like you know let me make the anti-studio film you know what I mean yeah well you know and like I said, in many ways, I kind of wish I had done that. You know, the only problem is I had a script with like 50 locations and 80 speaking roles. So <laughs> it's pretty tough to do. But I do find myself kind of compelled to do the next one that way, which is like, oh man, if I could just... I mean, most of my favorite shots in that movie were me and Nico, who was my DP, mm-hmm. just with a camera on the street somewhere, stealing a shot. 
Yeah. And they look beautiful. So, you know, it makes you kind of want to say, can I just get someone great with a camera and put the right lens on it? Get one sound guy and some friends and can we just go run around and make something? But then, you know, it's a toss up, right? Like, what does the audience want? They want spectacle, right? They want tension. They, they, right. they, Look at the look at the box office now. It's all spectacle, right? It's all Marvel right. movies, and you know they want a reason to go. At the same time, it's like, but maybe they want something else. It's just, I think it's just like if you make it the right way with the right people, you're okay, right? If you can go make the worst person in the world, I don't know if you saw that movie. You know, it's they clearly didn't make it for two hundred million dollars. They made it for that very sort of specific foreign audience, and and Americans that will watch a foreign film and it did great. So, I don't know. I'm talking circles on this, but yeah, I don't know. Can you, can you stop? You just got to make what you got to make. But but I'm with you. There's a piece of me that's like, I have all these ideas. Should, should, shouldn't I just put one in that sort of heist kind of genre? Yeah. Like, am I, am I being, am I being too stubborn? You know, and should I just try one to see if I can get it to work? The answer uh, is probably yes. You yes. know, the, the, the answer probably <laughs> is yes. The answer is like, hey, listen, you know, don't forget the audience. Like, go, go make, make what you want, make your art, but also try to make it so that the most people can enjoy it. But I don't know, can you work that way? Yeah. I, it's, it's a toss-up. And I guess that's where it comes down to me. I, I think that's where my Soderbergh appreciation comes from because it's like, it's a volume game for him, mm. I feel. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think the volume of it all, there's a quality to quantity. Like, you know, oh, I did this one and like, it didn't work, but got another one coming up fucking three months. So like, who cares? Like you do it and you, you fall and you get back up. And, you know, even, you know, I, I get kind of analytical. I try and reverse engineer what, why things get made. And I was looking at a couple of the last films that he made and I was like, it seems that there's this interesting like IP to them in the sense of like, here was this story about what they were doing in the auto industry, you know, in, in, in 19, whatever, you, you know, right. with, with the no sudden move or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and it's like, oh, there's, it, he's still doing it the way that they want the shit to be, done, which yeah. is, it's a fucking true story. But it's coming from a different entry point. And I, and I just wonder if that's helpful in how those particular films get made. Because uh, I bet absolutely, right? Because they, someone still has to go and sell it, right? So if you're making, we're basically talking about making independent film here, right? So if you're making an independent film, somebody is going to have to be able to say, okay, I can take this concept and sell it around the world. Yeah. So when you have some kind of IP, you know, whether it's like, hey, this is a movie, like Glenn Blackberry movie, which is great. You should see it. You know, the Blackberry is IP, right? Everyone remembers the Blackberry. So, you right. know, and the making of it. You know, the the, the problem was with that is it, it doesn't leave room for the the Boogie Nights and the Punch Drunk Loves and the, mm. you know, the Pulp Fictions and the, the yeah. movies that we really love, which are, you know, IP unto, unto themselves. Right. Right. So then you're dealing with genre elements like, uh, you know, Boogie Nights, you're selling sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and Pulp Fiction, you're selling violence. And those things do sell, you know, Punch Truck Love, that's a tougher sell. But then that's, a, <laughs> that's after right. you've already got a hit. And then you, you're selling the star, right? You're selling Adam right. Sandler. 
And it's also like, I, I just made a three hour and 14 minute movie. Yeah. This one's going to be 81 minutes. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma, man. But one, I, one question I did have about, about the film is like, what was your approach to lining up those actors? Was it difficult? Were you able to just call on personal relationships? Like, how do you round out was, such a, 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 a huge cast? It was a combination. You know, I think I was able to lean on a few people like Sudeikis, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the night said, you know, I got this sort of like, uh, based on a real experience I had, this crazy guy, you know, pushes me in a photo booth and you know, will you, will you portray this character? Um, and, and, you know, we'd done, we'd worked together like four or five times already by then. So he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come. It'll be like part of my schedule too helped. Right. I shot the thing in 27 days. So, right. um, to say, Hey, I need you for three days. That was another big part of it. And then I had, I had just worked with Malkovich. And so I had sent him the, the thing. And I said, look, it's just, it's one monologue, you know, are you interested in, the good fortune of him saying, oh, this is, I love this monologue. Of course, I'll, I'll do it. You know, and then that was sort of huge because once I had that, I was able to cast better, right? Now, now you are reaching out to a cast and you're saying, hey, we got today because we got Malkovich, but it's tricky, right? Because I'm trying to get the financiers to agree to a start date, but they need to know that a certain amount of people are in and I'm trying to get them to release the funds to prep because now I'm saying, you know, you can't just say to someone, hey, would you do this at some point, sometime, somewhere? You At a certain right. point, you got to plant the flag in the sand and say, okay, this movie is being made at this point in time. Are you in? So, you know, all, all like the sort of smaller supporting roles, plenty of those were, you know, friends and people that worked on Sunday that I could just reach out to. The bigger parts, you know, I, I think once I had today, because then once I had Edie Falco, who... She was supposed to be more days of work and asked if it could just be one. And so I wound up creating the role of the junior agent that Moses Storm did just so I could get Edie for one day. Once I had Malkovich and Sudeikis and Edie, I think it was a lot easier to go to Kate. And um, Ken was someone that my producer was saying, you know, you should work with. And Ken's agent was all over me. Right. And, you know, I hadn't worked with Ken, so I didn't know him. And I wanted to see if I could get him to do something very different than what he normally does. And then, uh, yeah, like Kate and Ray just reached out to them. Adrian was was my choice. I think maybe the financiers not their top choice. And like, you guys are crazy, man. Like, you, like you get Adrian Brody in this, he's gonna yeah. kill it. And so, super- always interesting where where the where the disagreements come on like cast. You know, like as as I've done some shows and and more of a producer position sometimes, and I'm like, we're arguing over this. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a certain, like, they want the people on the magazine covers they, that they feel like have the international box office mm-hmm. dollars, but none of that matters to the audience anymore. I don't think any one individual can open the movie. I think you can even do a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. And if it's the wrong movie, people aren't going to go see it. You know, just that, that era, that world is done. So, you know, get, get your best cast. I, I do yeah. think, look, there's a, you got, you probably have to have some people in there that people recognize, but not more than one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, man, I, I tip my hat to you, man. Like it's, I think it's a reflection of being a, being a true artist, you know, and, 
and wearing so many different hats and being an entrepreneur too, because that's that's what filmmaking is. Like you gotta you have to become like, you know, all parts of the assembly line to get something done. And it's fucking hard. And I think the movie's great. So Thanks, man. Well, you're right. You, you are you are correct. The movie is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel um, like I feel like this conversation is I, it's so awesome. I feel like he, uh, you mentioned Pulp Fiction. It's like it's like Sam Jackson, you know, in the diner after he's decided to go a different route and like <laughs> caught me on a very particular day, you know. Yeah, but I mean, I I was actually really excited to you know because I reached back out to you and I was like, come on, I want to have this conversation because. I thought, well, this is the more interesting filmmaker conversation to have, right? Because yeah. that, otherwise, yeah. all you're hearing is about people's successes and then yeah. maybe how they did it. But the the reality is, like, it is just a it is just a fight in the mud for everything to get any movie made, to get anything done, to have it turn out good, to all the things that come at you that whether they're within the making of the movie or in the greater world outside that are going to create issues and challenges and and then you know the conversations we're having about like well what do you do next and you know how how much do you just do what is going to be commercially successful like you know what's commercially successful mcdonald's well what if i don't want to sell you know hamburgers and fries you know what if i want to try to have someone eat a hot dog covered in ice cream you know like why can't that be art so like (laughs) you know I think like that's the more interesting conversation to have. And mm-hmm. th- that's the reality of what we do. It's right. just constantly. And, and, you know, my motivation for doing it, going back to the beginning of our conversation, going back to the character's wants, my want is that I just want to live and exist within these films and stories. Mm-hmm. I like being a part of it. I want to be in it. I want, I want to be in Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. I, I want to be in you know, a Sidney Lumet film. Right. And so when it happens, if the phone rings, awesome. If Guillermo calls, I'm there. But when it's not happening, I don't want to just sort of sit around and hope that it happens. So I I get these ideas that I'm like, well, what about this one? I don't even know that I want to be a director. But like, I'm like, there's just certain things that I'm like, well, I, I, I mean, I guess clearly I do because otherwise, why would I put myself through the torture of it? But like, I just love being a part of it. So... I just keep making it happen yeah. until they fucking force me to stop. Right, right, right. And, and you know, maybe they will, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, good luck trying. <laughs> well, this, I, I call this portion of the convo rounding, rounding third. Love I have it. a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody or I pull from a bunch of them. And I got uh, maybe two for you. If, you. if there were a movie made about your life, the biopic, which I've heard some people say biopic, and and I started wondering if I was wrong. I'm I with biopic. biopic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Who? What genre would it be? Who would play you? Who would direct it? And what medium? So actually, it doesn't have. It could be TV or film. It could, so let me let me say in the story of your life. Uh, so what, story of TV my life. Your film. Who's playing you and who's directing it? And what genre? Well, the story of my life, it's, it's film. It's a, it's a bittersweet comedy for sure. It would probably have multiple people playing it. Cause you'd have to have the young me and then like the high school me, and then I'll play me now. 
<laughs> and uh, that would be dope, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could be interesting. And uh, hell, I mean, if I'm going through all that, I might as well direct it too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect answer after this conversation. Yeah. Okay. And and what what three characteristics do you think somebody needs to make it in this industry? Oh. That's a great question. I think you have to be a bit of a dreamer, right? You have to just be sort of someone who can sit and fantasize about where they're going to be, but also what stories they're going to tell, what movies they want to see, or if you're just an actor, what your performance may look like or what kind of a performance you're capable of giving. You have to sit and like have these like lucid daydreams where you're just mm. sort of kind of always in this sort of hopeful state, right? You have to be this hopeful person, I think, who's fantasizing about what what the future could, you know, what sort of in the future could be a great movie or a great performance and then find your way to it. And of course, the thing in your fantasy are never the same, but it's a different thing and you've, and you've made it and then it exists and you keep sort of chasing down that incredible performance or that incredible movie. So... You have to have that. Then you have to be completely resilient, you know, which is to say you have to be willing to get rejected constantly. You have to be willing to get beat up by critics and fans. You have to be willing to make choices that people are going to be like, well, that sucks. But you have to be willing to take those lumps and, and, and able to then bounce back from them and say, well, nah, fuck it, I'm going to keep going. So that, fuck it, I'm going to keep going, that, you know, 10, 15 years of just never getting any work, but still you're trying to match that up with the fantasy in your head of like, but I will, you know, Mm -hmm. but I will. Like, So you have to have those two qualities for sure. Those are, I think, the two most essential ones. A third quality? Mm. You know, beyond those two things, I don't really know what else matters. Mm. You know, like, yeah, you don't have to have some sort of innate talent. You don't have to be a likable person. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, 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 I think you just have to have that, that draw, that desire mixed with that resilience. I really just think it's those two things. What do people normally say? Do you get a third one a lot? Yeah, I mean, it's it's some kind of combination. I've never, I don't think I've gotten dreamer before. And I think that's, or or maybe not that in that specific, you know, presentation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's often, it, you know, what it's a third one that comes up. It's usually, yeah, some kind of resiliency is, it's, it's, you know, having something to say, you know, because if you're, if while you're dreaming and, and, and using your resiliency to continue, it's like what's guiding you as an engine. And, and you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. continue in that way. Oh, I, I know a third one, I think. You have to have an ability to take note of the accomplishments that you do have. Now, I think there's a tendency for some people to say, ah, oh, I, I, I haven't done shit and that other person has more. You know, you have to like sort of stop along the way and be like, hey, I made that short film. 
And that happened. Right. You know, nobody watched it. Nobody liked it. But like, right. I fucking made that. And, you know, you do have to be able to say that over and over again, you know, hey, I acted in that Wendy's commercial, you know what I mean? And, and like, it was a national commercial, you know? So right. yes, I'm not, I'm not in a Scorsese film, but I act, I got a part in a commercial and I'll do it again. If you're never sort of satisfied with the achievements that you are having along the way, it, it'll just tear you apart and you'll never be happy because then you'll get the thing and there'll be some other shiny object down the line that you won't get. So it's good to dream and it's good to be resilient, but you also have to say, to say like, hey, look, if, if I never worked again, I'm proud of the things that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you'll just be dead on the inside. Yeah. And so I used to teach a class at NYU with a guy, Tom Drysdale, who was like, it, like what you would picture of a professor. You know what I mean? <laughs> Big beard. Uh, always chewing on a cigar, cardigan, you know, turtleneck, and knew fucking something about everything. I love talking to that guy. But he used to say, our goal for the students is to keep their feet on the ground, but their head in the clouds. Yeah. And I was like, that's well, really but- nice. That's really nice, right? And it, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like, mm-hmm. acknowledge, don't forget the reality of what you're accomplishing here, but, but you got to keep keep your eye on something bigger than what you've gotten right now at the same time. Yeah. Like even if you're an actor who hasn't like booked a job, but if you're like, I got up in the morning and I learned those lines and I went to that audition and I did it and like, maybe I didn't nail it, but I did it, you know? Yeah. yeah just being able to kind of, being able to do that. And it's tough. It's tough for me. You know, I, I need to do it to myself sometimes. Be like, Hey man, you did that shit. Now go do yeah. something else. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, I think, the third quality for sure. All right, man. Well, I, I, I really appreciate it, man. I'm glad you hit me back up. I was about to take a break. I, I got you just to, in time. going to Mexico tomorrow. So I Are was you like, really? you know what? Yes, awesome. I got I to gotta, I gotta chat with this brother and make sure we make it happen, man. So this has been really cool. And like I, I say all the time, like I, I get to work with different folks, but I don't think we've ever had a real conversation of any, any length. Yeah. You know, so always I, on or, set, always, always uh, on about site. the work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's great to get to know you more and hear, hear the journey, man. For real. Well, let's do it more. And then, yeah, come back to Sunny, please, and make, make a movie. Put me in it. Yeah. Let's do it. Both let's of those go. things are, are on the to do list. I'd love to join you guys again. It's always a good time. Let's do it. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, thank you for tuning in to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, episode 50. That was my man, Charlie Day. That was a really awesome conversation, really honest, reflective, and I hope, you know, offered some artistic nutrition to those of you out there listening and watching. That's it for season three. Got to the episode 50 mark. Pretty crazy. This started during the pandemic, and here we are 
you know, over 50 hours later, I'm still doing it. But this will conclude season three. And I'll be back with season four sometime later this year. I thank all y'all for listening. Go deep into the archive if you haven't. There's really great conversations with people. I, I feel proud of every episode. I think there are gems to be gleaned from each talented person that we've had a chance to talk to. And yeah, by the time you hear this, I'm going to be on a beach in another country relaxing with my family. So thank y'all. And as always, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.